0: it's sometime during the year 1986 and you walk into your neighborhood video rental store it's still a few years until blockbuster video would become more commonplace in our cities so the independent video store provides us with our rental entertainment you have your membership card walk in and head straight for the new releases hoping they still have some available copies the shelves are mainly full of VHS tapes and some Betamax. But then there's something different. It looks like a vinyl album, but it's shiny and metallic. It looks like something right out of the future. But what is this futuristic looking technology and how in the world can you watch movies with a laser beam? I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, we look back on a unique format that will try to compete with VHS and beta to become the dominant video format of the 80s. This is the story of LaserDisc. I never owned a Laserdisc player, and I didn't even know anyone who owned one, but I was fascinated by this futuristic technology. The costs were high, but to me, it always seemed worth it to watch a movie the way I believe Luke Skywalker would have. But I did get to see them in action. Our local video store, Jumbo Video, Canadians who grew up in the 80s will know, would play them as everyone huddled around watching and eating their free popcorn. LaserDisc was another one of those inventions that seemed like the future was now. But Laserdisc was more than just a giant CD, and not surprisingly, a lot went into its development. And it goes further back than you may realize. Let's check out all things Laserdisc and how it paved the way for our modern video technology. If you're younger or didn't grow up in the 80s, Laserdisc was a record size CD looking disc. It was 12 inches in diameter and made up of two-sided aluminum discs layered in plastic. As much as it had a digital appearance, the Laserdisc was actually analog. The technical details of how Laserdisc works are somewhat simple, but I'm still going to try and give it my best Mr. Wizard explanation. A laser disc has a thin layer of metal covered with microscopic bumps called pits and falls. And as mentioned, this is completely analog. Unlike CDs and DVDs, the pits and falls on those things are essentially read as ones and zeros. Laser disc used FM modulation. This means that those little bumps on the disc are dynamic. Basically, they are different sizes and also spaced differently. A CD or DVD spaces are pretty much all the same size and just go up, down, up, down. Laserdisc spaces are kind of all over the place. They can be short, wide, up, down, sideways, and so on. The invention of the Laserdisc can trace its roots all the way back to 1958. The idea way back then was that video could actually be reproduced through electron beam optical technology. This would evolve into lasers but this is a very important technology as it's not only the foundation for Laserdisc but also CDs and DVDs. A patent for a video disc was put in place as far back as 1962. The patents were purchased by MCA in 1968 and in 1969, Philips developed one of its very first versions. This early iteration used a reflective mode compared to the MCA transparent mode. There was a lot of technology and design to sort through, and in a rare move, Philips and MCA actually joined forces to develop the new format. One of the very first versions was demonstrated all the way back in 1972. Back then MCA called it DiscoVision, a name that could not date it more unless you called it the Bell Bottom Movie Machine. But having two companies involved was complicating matters and quickly led to quality control issues. But in 1978 this new laser-based video format first became available in North America. It was then launched in Japan in 1981 and in Europe in 1982. The fact that it came out in North America as far back as 1978 is pretty remarkable when you consider that this is only a few years after the first VCRs hit the market. I have a previous episode all about the history of the VCR and the battle between VHS and Betamax if you want to go back to my earlier episodes. But as we go into the 80s, along with Beta and VHS, Laserdisc was the third video format available to the public. Most format wars are often a two-horse race with both competing to become the dominant standard. Nintendo Sega, Apple Android, AC versus DC, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, and of course, VHS versus Beta. But it's easy to forget that the video format war in the 80s had a third competitor trying to carve out its own path, Laserdisc. So it's mainly been VHS versus Beta, but also this strange disco machine that was so fraught with problems right out of the gate that the entire Laserdisc industry was almost dead within just a few years. But in 1980, Pioneer Electronics set everything straight by purchasing a majority stake in the new format. They also gave it a new name. They called the format Laservision and the brand name was now called Laserdisc. So that's important to note, Laservision was the actual format name. So like Kleenexes to facial tissue, Tylenol to pain relievers, and Zamboni to ice resurfacing machines, Laserdisc was just a brand name. But eventually Laserdisc just became synonymous with the entire format. Pioneer, based in Japan, was much further ahead in development and manufacturing, but hadn't really broken through into North America. They were the ideal company to help get Laserdisc off the ground, as their hardware was second to none. Philips and MCA were still in the mix, but Pioneer really took it to the next level. The early 80s was an interesting time for home video, VCRs that had only been out a few years were incredibly expensive and just weren't yet commonplace in most homes. Now you have a third option. There was no telling how huge the home video market would soon become and other options for these new technologies were explored. With Laserdisc at first, there was a real focus on the education markets. When Laserdisc first came out, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago used them for data storage. Laserdisc had an enormous storage, so people could come in and look up newspapers on these giant discs. But at its core, this was an entertainment device. Laserdisc was meant for movies. It was great the museum discovered a notable use for them, but these things were meant to get into people's homes. The public needed to understand this was the ideal format to watch their favorite movies. Movies in the home were still a novel concept in the early 80s and they needed to start releasing some titles so people would want to buy them. On December 15th, 1978, the very first movie was released to Laserdisc. Jaws gets the honor of being that very first release. But we're now into the 80s and companies like Magnavox, who made the MagnaVision, had to sell people on the virtues of this new technology. That meant convincing people to spend a small fortune on the players and the discs. And who better to extol the virtues of this futuristic technology than Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy? Interesting. A record player that produces beautiful sound and pictures through my TV. What is it called? Ah, Magnavision. Gourmet video for people who know and love video. I see. The system consists of this MagnaVision optical video disc player, a LaserVision video disc, and my TV. You can't see it there, but Nimoy is actually talking back and forth with a flashing rock. Did you ever get to hold a LaserDisc? They were surprisingly heavy and required a pretty solid unit to play them in. The earliest players actually used helium-neon laser tubes to read the disc, which sounds kind of terrifying to have in your home. In March 1984, Pioneer released the first player with a proper solid-state laser, the LD-700. But regardless of the versions, Laserdisc players were simply not cheap. Early machines could cost around $1,000 or around $4,500 when adjusted for inflation. Some were cheaper, some were more expensive, and they had to deal with the fact VCRs were becoming more affordable. The early Laserdisc players also loaded from the top, kind of like a record player, but this new Pioneer player from 1984 could be loaded in the front, the way you would with a DVD or CD player. Interestingly, Laserdisc players made in the mid-80s and on could actually play CDs. The problem is that the steady-state laser used in the new 1984 models led to poor picture quality. It turns out that helium and neon worked better for playback. But then there was still the big issue of why the public should buy one. The steady-state laser editions still had better sound and picture quality than a VHS, But was this enough reason for someone to spend the amount of what would back then get you a very good used car? It also hadn't taken long for VHS to come on strong. At first, Beta owned 100% of the VCR market. By 1980, VHS controlled 60% of it. And by 1987, that number would rise to 90% of the market. In the first half of the 80s, Laserdisc had a real uphill battle on its hands. How could it sell itself apart from videotapes and let people know how advanced it really was? This required playing up its strengths while minimizing its cons. But those cons were significant and would eventually lead to its undoing. Everything 80s will return after these messages. This is probably a good time to look at the pros and cons of Laserdisc because it had many of each. Here are some of the pros the marketing efforts had to focus on as VHS was quickly taking over the landscape. With Laserdisc, you got a great degree of control over the playback process. It actually had better controls in that way than the DVD. You could jump to any frame in a movie just by entering the frame number in the remote. With VHS or beta, you had to hope your fast forward and rewind skills were incredibly precise. A damaged spot on a laserdisc can be played over or just skipped by. If your VHS tape got chewed up, that could be game over for your copy of Batteries Not Included. On a DVD or Blu-ray, a damaged spot can really mess things up as you often can't play past it. With a DVD or Blu-ray, the entire movie can come to a halt. And that means stopping the movie, taking it out, cleaning it or blowing on it as if that actually does anything, then queuing it back up to try and find where you left off only for it to come to a halt again. It's thought by audiophiles that the sound on Laserdisc is superior to even that on DVD. It's thought that Laserdisc has a smoother and more film like sound to it. True movie lovers needed to have Laserdisc. The quality was so good that many albums would be released on Laserdisc. If you loved and appreciated sound from movies and music, you had to have this format. Laserdisc couldn't block out navigation controls, and to me, this is big. This is how DVD, Blu-ray, or 4K blocks the ability to control being able to automatically jump to the movie and force you to sit through previews, announcements, and messages. So, some pretty great features, and this was the focus of the marketing. The Pioneer combination CD LaserDisc player with a 60% sharper picture than most VCRs and the incredible clarity of CD sound. It makes movies, music, and concerts truly come to life. But then there are the cons, and they are pretty big cons. Ultimately, the problems that existed with Laserdisc probably led to its demise more than its benefits. When Laserdisc hit the market, here were some of the initial complaints about the format. The discs were heavy, about a half pound, and could be easily damaged. Since they were so heavy, it took a toll on the components of the players, leading to more noise than other format players. Those early Magnavox units also got incredibly hot and could sometimes melt the disc. You couldn't record on a laser disc. We'll get back to this in a bit, it's significant. Playback was limited to around 30 to 60 minutes per side. When one side was finished, you actually had to get up and flip over the disc like you would with an archaic record on a gramophone like you were in a 19th century parlor. And entire discs could maybe hold two hours at best. Future units would be able to flip the disc by changing the direction of the laser inside. But this feature might have been too little too late and expensive. Even though the disc could play past scratches and such, they still needed to be immaculate to not have parts skipped over. Even slight scratches and dust could result in read errors which would cause playback problems. Too many scratches and you had a viewing nightmare on your hands. The discs also had to be perfectly flat. We're talking straight as a frozen rope in winter, any sort of bending on the disc would result in cross-talk by the laser, which distorted the picture. This bending wasn't just from user neglect, but brand new factory discs sometimes could have slight warping, which could create this problem. Again, another significant issue we'll get back to in a bit. A huge problem is there was actually a difference between discs and players. Whereas all VHS tapes were the same, the quality of Laserdisc could vary depending on the manufacturer. Some of the first DiscoVision discs were actually made by hand. There just wasn't a definitive standard of disc. Same thing with the players. A low-quality disc could still look bad on a high-end player, and if you had a large TV, the low-quality would be even more evident. This led to many bad possible combinations between disc manufacturers and models of players. There was no consistency across the platform as there was with VHS. Any brand of VHS tape could work in any brand of VHS VCR. With Laserdisc, it was chaos. If you owned a Magnavox player but could only find a specific movie that was made by MCA, you could be out of luck as the image and sound could be completely distorted. There were also a lot of poorly put together discs. A Laserdisc wasn't a single unit, but two sides basically glued together. Some companies used a cheap George Costanza adhesive that could leak through and damage the disc, leading to huge playback problems. But now we have to compare Laserdisc head-to-head That's a little VCR humor there because VCRs use magnetic heads to play the tape. Anyway, moving on, we have to compare Laserdisc head-to-head with the king of home video in the 80s, the Video Home System, or VHS. Going into the mid-80s, VHS was clearly winning the format war against beta, but how did VHS stack up to the shiny metallic combatant? Well, Laserdisc could easily go toe-to-toe with its tape-based counterpoint. Right off the bat, there is the obvious issue of picture quality, and it was a substantial quality. When you look at the horizontal resolution, Laserdisc provided around 425 lines, while VHS was maybe 240 per picture height. A huge advantage for Laserdisc was that it had more room to store audio and could contain multiple audio tracks. This allowed for something called a director's commentary, which we take for granted today, but was a big deal when they first came out. Studios could now put out special editions with these extra tracks, and a few of the first releases to do so were the 1984 Criterion Collection of the 1933 King Kong film and Citizen Kane. These first of its kind discs contain interviews, commentary tracks, documentaries, and still photographs. This set the standard for all future special edition releases with bonus content now pretty much standard on any release. With Laserdisc, studios could also release special collector's editions and release films in widescreen frame and letterbox so we could see films the way directors intended. The premium movie viewing experience was a big focus of Laserdisc as it was trying to capture the rental market which was really starting to explode. LaserDisc was also used for a few video games, including Space Ace and the quarter Goblin game Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair, the fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. You control the actions of a daring adventurer finding his way through the castle of a dark wizard who has enchanted it with treacherous monsters and obstacles. Laserdisc allowed these games to feature full motion video. Released all the way back in 1983, you may remember crowding around Dragon's Lair in an arcade to see this astonishing game, but knowing you would have to take out a small loan to play it. Speaking of video games, and here's a deep cut for you, you may remember the Halcyon video game system. Partly named after Hal, the computer from 2001 as Space Odyssey, this short-lived system, released in 1985, actually used Laserdisc for the game. If you've ever felt that you could have called a better game than your favorite quarterback, your time has arrived. Courtesy of the ultimate in video entertainment, this voice-activated Laserdisc computer. You want to play? Yes. This is Halcyon, the first interactive Laserdisc video system for the home. Created by Rick Dyer, the person behind Dragon's Lair, this remarkably advanced video game system, set to sell for an eye watering $2,500 or nearly $7,000 when converted for today, only produced two games as it just wasn't cost efficient enough to continue. Back in the home video market, Laserdisc was also initially cheaper to produce than VHS cassettes. This is because the disc didn't have all the moving parts that a VHS or Betamax tape did. A VHS has around 14 parts, including the tape, and a Laserdisc has one part with five to six layers. Laserdisc also had a longer lifespan than VHS because the discs were read optically and not mechanically the way a VHS had to be. This mechanical reading of a VHS led to more wear and tear and the dreaded moment when you would eject it and the tape was still deep in the VCR. Anyone listening who's, shall we say, 25-ish and under, you'll have to ask your parents what a horrifying experience this was. And there was no winding it back in with a pencil the way you would with a cassette tape. You pretty much had to kiss that copy of Flight of the Navigator goodbye. Not that I'm talking from a painful experience. Speaking of rewinding, you of course didn't have to rewind a Laserdisc, so no charges by the video store when you forgot to rewind a VHS rental. Kids, again, ask your parents about that one. So, score a few more points for Laserdisc over VHS, and a big reason why Laserdisc tried to corner the rental market. When you look at this, you might wonder why Laserdisc didn't take over the format wars beating out VHS. So what happened? Laserdisc seemed better than VHS in almost every way. Almost every way. There were still a few significant issues. Cost, as usual, was a major factor, both at the retail and manufacturing point. Going later into the 1980s, things were getting more expensive for laserdisc. Because of the rising cost of the plastic mechanisms that did the stamping, pressing discs was costing about $5 per two-sided disc. At the same time, producing a VHS tape was getting cheaper to copy and produce, getting down to only a dollar or so per tape. In Japan, costs were subsidized to make laser discs about the same price as VHS, but that wasn't the case in other parts of the world. Laserdisc obviously didn't win the format war. And we can't pinpoint the downfall of Laserdisc to one thing as there are many factors, but we as consumers always want things to be as cheap as possible. And that was probably the root issue. Laserdisc, both the machines and the discs just weren't cheap. People were still buying them, but it just wasn't a substantial part of the home video market. Some estimates say that laserdisc reached less than 2% of homes and at the most 5%. Blu-ray, let alone 4K, could be seen as a niche product compared to the DVD, but as of just five years ago, upwards of 34% of homes own a Blu-ray player, a good 30% more than own Laserdisc at its peak. Like Blu-ray and 4K, Laserdisc was embraced more by hardcore movie lovers who will always seek out the latest physical format. The average consumer just didn't care that much about enhanced audio and video, especially at those prices. And considering the fact that later in the 80s, you could get a great VCR for next to nothing. For the average person, laserdisc just didn't make sense. Another huge thing I alluded to earlier was you couldn't record on them. Laserdisc was for occasional use, whereas the VHS had a place in everyday life. The VCR was used constantly by the whole family. For only a few bucks, you could fit six hours or so on a videotape. Recording time was also one of the big reasons VHS beat out Betamax. Beta had a very limited recording capacity and people gravitated toward VHS. Again, more value laserdisc had nothing to offer when it came to recording making this a substantial issue another reason they tried to double down on the rental market one other small but still significant issue was laserdisc wasn't for lazy people i'm actually not joking as this can determine a lot of our actions and purchases think of when you finally got comfortable on the couch and have to think about getting up it's gut-wrenching or if you're on the couch and drop something that's out of reach It may as well be on the moon. Every LaserDisc had to be flipped over. And for longer movies, it might need two to three discs. That was a hard pass for many people. If you're spending the equivalent of $4,500, it better switch the disc itself, clean out the garage and then give you a foot rub. But LaserDisc still did hang in there and carried on into the 90s. But it was just too hard to keep up, especially since the DVD was taking over. On October 3rd, 2000, the last title for Laserdisc was released, and it was Bringing Out the Dead starring Nicolas Cage, Patricia Arquette, and John Goodman. By 2001, Laserdisc was completely over in North America. But interestingly, the players were still manufactured in Japan as far as 2009. Laserdisc definitely had some massive problems associated with it, and I don't think they considered the consumer's needs, which was also the issue with Betamax that eventually led to its downfall. Laserdisc probably was a bit too ahead of its time and just not accessible for the average person. When you consider the cost and that average consumers don't necessarily care that much about picture and sound quality, it really was a niche product. This was high technology, but at the end of the day, Laserdisc just wasn't that affordable or convenient, which is what most consumers are looking for. As much as our technology has developed, the average person isn't always concerned with the latest advancements. Sure, they admire the newest TVs and displays, but that's often as far as it goes. When 4K Ultra HD was released, not that many people seemed to have adopted it when it came out. This was the same issue with Laserdisc, but it had many more issues to deal with. Could Laserdisc have benefited from being released a decade or two later? Maybe, but the problem was the DVD soon came along to become the dominant format. I just don't think there was an ideal time for Laserdisc, at least from a mainstream perspective. Laserdisc was part novelty and part ingenuity. Growing up, I didn't know anyone that owned one. I didn't even know anyone who knew anyone who owned one, but everyone was aware of them. And in the eighties, I absolutely dreamt of owning one. Laserdisc was the definition of the latest and greatest, but it ended up being kicked to the curb alongside its old friend, Betamax. But did it really? There's actually another way to look at this. If you consider that DVD and Laserdisc share the same technology, The Laserdisc continued to live on as it evolved into the DVD. Laserdisc ostensibly won the war against VHS and Beta. And all of this brings up an interesting issue that harkens back to our days of VHS, Beta, and Laserdisc. We obviously live in an age of streaming and everything we want is on demand. We've cut the cord to go the streaming route, but now with so many streaming options, it's like cable all over again. If you include the key ones like Netflix, Apple TV, HBO Max, Disney Plus, and so on, there are a dozen major streaming options, and that's just the big ones. As of right now, I've counted 68 different streaming services, and that's not including the ones connected to actual networks. But the problem is, there's no telling how long your favorite movies or TV shows will stay on each specific platform. You may subscribe to a particular service just for one or two shows, only to see those shows removed without warning. And this is why physical media will always be important. Whether it's Laserdisc, VHS, Beta, DVD, Blu-ray, or 4K, when you buy a movie or TV series on one of these formats, you truly own it. People have seemingly become frustrated with modern streaming and are returning again to physical media. I mentioned 4K Blu-ray as being niche, but the changing landscape has increased its appeal. Not long ago, as of the time of this recording, the format saw its greatest sales quarter ever with 200 million discs sold. This is pretty remarkable that this is happening right in the golden age of streaming. People want to truly own their movies again like we did growing up there's still something significant about being able to hold and own your own media. It's like streaming and digital is a backup. I have a pretty big Blu-ray collection as I want to always own the movies I love and view them in the best possible presentation. But from the CD to DVD to Blu-ray and now 4K, the modern formats we continue to embrace to this day can all trace their roots back to Laserdisc. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this, there's plenty more where that came from in my earlier episodes. Here are some suggestions for further listening. There is my previous episode all about VHS versus beta. I have one about how the Top Gun VHS changed home video rental forever. And I mentioned video games and I have one all about the history of the NES. So if you really like this show, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, so you're kept up to date with new episodes. If you really like this show, you can leave it a five-star rating and review. That not only helps the show, but it exposes it to more people to enjoy these stories from our past. And if you're in a position to support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content including things like the Everything 80s movie review podcast where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. So if you want to learn more, you can go to patreon.com/80s, that's p a t r e o n.com/80s or click on the link in the description. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.